Welcome to our podcast series, Who's Universal?, which Haus der Kultur und der Welt is hosting in the run-up to the White West Conference series. The conference series is co-organized by Anna Teixeira Pinto, Kada Atia, and Ansem Franke. In today's episode, which was recorded in early February 2022, Anna Teixeira Pinto is in conversation with Utsa Patnaik and Prabhat Patnaik. Both are highly renowned for their writings on political economy, inequality in a global perspective, and the relations between capitalism and imperialism. Utsa Patnaik is Professor Emerita at the Center for Economic Studies and Planning at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. Her publications include, among numerous others, The Agrarian Question in the Neoliberal Era from 2011 and The Republic of Hunger and Other Essays, published in 2007. Prabhat Patnaik is also Professor Emeritus at the Center for Economic Studies and Planning at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His books include the titles The Value of Money from 2009 and Re-Envisioning Socialism from 2011. In 2021, they published their most recent joint book entitled Capital and Imperialism, Theory, History and the Present. I would be personally very interested on your definition of imperialism because, of course, like I think that uh, when people think of imperialism, they think about, uh, you know, this kind of like um, uh, direct military interventions or they think about uh, political military hegemony. They do not think about imperialism in terms of a collusion between sovereign power and uh, monopoly finance, right? And so um, if you could, uh, you know, like unpack your conception of imperialism for us, uh, I think that would be very helpful for our listeners. Well, our notion of imperialism is that it is not just political domination. It is, it is not just military intervention, but it is something which is really supposed to establish a certain economic relationship. The need for such a relationship arises because of the money form that you find under capitalism. Money form has two implications. The first implication is that if money can be held as a form of wealth, then it is perfectly possible that under many, in many situations, wealth holders would like to hold money as opposed to capital stock or claims on capital stock. And when that happens, then we know that the output in what Marx had called Department One, which means investment good sectors goes down, and that has a multiplier effect on the economy, unemployment gets generated, and so on. And if it happens, then of course the economy starts going down. Therefore, one implication of the money form is that the capitalist mode of production requires external markets. This is what Rosa Luxemburg had argued a long time ago. But the other implication of the money form is that you actually have to avoid inflation because, after all, if wealth can be held in the form of money and if that money is value in terms of commodities can fluctuate widely, then, of course, it becomes an unsustainable proposition. The system becomes unsustainable. So a degree of price stability 
is required. Not that prices remain completely stable over time, but they rise in a manner, if at all they do, which is small, relatively small, predictable, and so on. And that being the case, cap since capitalism requires a lot of commodities, which it cannot do without, but which it cannot produce. Therefore, these commodities it has to acquire from the rest of the world, which it has been doing for hundreds of years, like oil, for instance, or tropical agricultural goods. Now, for these, therefore, you it's not enough that you acquire them, but it is enough that you acquire them in a non-inflationary manner. So that not that their prices keep going up, but in fact at relatively stable prices. Now, because of the fact that, let's say, the tropical land area is limited, you obtain this, therefore, by having a mechanism of squeezing local absorption of these goods. The output does not necessarily increase, but you actually get local absorption getting reduced, in which case you can actually get these commodities without a rise in their prices. This is what in the book we call income deflation. Okay, so you impose income deflation on these countries. And then, in a sense, imperialism becomes invisible because, after all, uh, prices are rising. We impose an in income deflation, and, 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 and nobody sees this as a way of servicing capitalism, servicing in particular metropolitan capitalism. Now, this happened in colonial times through the taxation system, but this is happening these days, for instance, through the imposition of a certain financial order in the world, uh, IMF conditionalities, or um, the various requirements that finance capital has that you cannot have an increase of more than 3% in your fiscal deficit, 3% of GDP, etc. So you have a whole set of rules by which countries get bound whose primary objective is to service the capital market, particularly the metropolitan capitalist market, which is the real home base of capitalism, without a rise in the prices of commodities. This is arrangement that we call imperialism. Yeah, I mean, um, I know you said this already, but, uh, you know, like, because I find that this definition of imperialism is something that inheres in the currency form to be uh, the most elegant and, uh, you know, like uh, succinct definition I ever encountered. Um, I was wondering if we could just like zoom in that question of like the currency form and um, what would mean, uh, well, I mean, that's perhaps like a too wide of a question, but uh, um, if imperialism inheres in the currency form, uh, what would it mean to have a non-imperialistic world in terms of like monetary policy? Well, you, okay, let me begin by saying that what is called mainstream economics has completely ignored the currency form or, or what we call the money form. In mainstream economics, uh, prior to the writings of John Maynard Keynes in Britain and so on. And, and, and in a sense, even now, because after all, there has been a revival of pre-Keynesian economic hegemony once more in the profession. Basically, you see the value of money as being determined by the demand and supply of money. Okay. Now, that essentially presupposes that money is not held as a form of wealth. 
that basically you know the 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 standard thing that used to uh, be assumed earlier before Keynes for instance is what they call a constant velocity of circulation of money or in the Cambridge version of it a constant k that is a constant relationship between income and and and, and the demand for money but if money can be held as a wealth then there is no reason why there should be any constant uh, uh, relationship of that kind so mainstream economics has completely ignored the money form in fact, Keynes's contribution to mainstream economics was actually to recognize the money form, which he did because he was keen on saving capitalism. As you know, he was a defender of capitalism. But he said that, look, unemployment of this order, this he was writing in, during the Depression, is something that the world is not going to tolerate. So if you have to defend the system, then you have to rectify it as well. You have to get rid of its defects. And one defect was the fact that it produced unemployment. And that was partly because that was a period in which imperialist market, markets for imperialism had got more or less exhausted, etc. We discussed that in our book. Uh, now, the point is that Marx, however, was, was, was acutely aware of the money form, and that's why he uh, thought of it as, I mean, you know, he had this notion of money being a form of wealth holding. Um, and, and, and so in Marx, as well as later on in Keynes, you have a recognition of the money form, and the money form is characterized above all by the fact that money is a form in which wealth is held, can be held, uh, and is actually held under capitalism. And that is what gives rise to problems. Because if you have wealth in money form, then you can't afford to have inflation. The system cannot afford to have uh, unpredictable prices. Similarly, if you have uh, wealth in money form, then you can have unemployment, you can have deficiency of aggregate demand, you can have market problems, you can have etc. So, so it is a recognition of the money form that makes capitalism necessarily from its very beginning imperialist. We are not using Lenin's understanding of imperialism where it arises only at a certain stage of capitalism, but we are actually seeing capitalism from the very beginning as being imperialist and that's because of the fact that from from the very beginning it has required raw materials it has required foodstuffs primary commodities and so on and it requires them at non-increasing non-inflationary uh, uh, prices and for that it becomes necessary for it to have political control political control or in the old days these days not political control but a set of rules by which the entire periphery is really governed. Can I just add a few words to this? When Prabhat is talking in terms of uh, non-inflationary prices, um, this is a very general formulation. But as a matter of fact, uh, when we look at the historical origins of capitalist industrialization, first in Britain and then its diffusion to other parts uh, of Europe and to North America, we find that it was not a question only of prices which were not increasing, but prices which were zero. In other words, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the acquisition of an enormous range of commodities from uh, today's global south 
completely free without paying anything at all. Uh, this is uh, an important aspect of our discussion, uh, particularly in the historical chapters, which has uh, not appeared in the mainstream literature ever. It is not recognized at all. There has been um, a long discussion in India on the drain of wealth. But if you look at even the Marxist writings in Europe, um, there is no awareness of or understanding of what the drain of wealth actually was. That uh, there is no awareness or understanding of why uh, a handful of European nations needed to impose trade at gunpoint. After all, Asian and other, other societies had been trading for many centuries, quite peacefully. So why was it necessary for these European nations to use force to uh, literally uh, impose trade at gunpoint? The fact that uh, the European uh, nations, today's European nations and North America, are all located in the cold temperate uh, belts of the earth, and their capacity for primary production is severely limited. This is a material fact which is, does not occur anywhere in the literature on colonialism and imperialism, not even in the Marxist literature. For example, if we look at um, you know, uh, Eric Hobsbawm's writings uh, on British industrialization, he has no reference to the drain of wealth at all. Now, once you understand it, the drain of wealth is very easy to comprehend. I think even for lay people who won't be perhaps able to understand why uh, capitalism uh, requires uh, inheres or imperialism inheres in the money form, they might find it a little difficult. But the drain of wealth is very simple. It is that once uh, the colonizers acquired political control, direct political control, they were able to appropriate economic surplus directly as taxes in the case of Asia or as slave rent in the case of the Caribbean colonies. And then they could simply use those taxes and convert them into commodities. Therefore, they did not have to pay anything at all. They got those commodities completely free because the producers who, who they paid were themselves the contributors to the taxation revenues. So this free acquisition is something which is not recognized anywhere in the extant literature. And of course, the inability of European countries in the cold temperate belt, as well as North America today, to produce the commodities which are only producible in tropical lands. And this includes the commodities they can produce in their summer months, but which they cannot produce in their winter months. Those are also analytically tropical commodities. You know, because they can only be obtained from the tropical lands now in January, February. Nothing fresh can be grown in the cold temperate lands at all. So this inability continues at present. And if we want to understand the contours of present-day imperialism, if we want to understand why constant pressure is put on the developing countries to dismantle their own food procurement and distribution systems, if we want to understand how the World Trade Organization is operating, why for more than 10 years now, the WTO discipline is being imposed to say, uh, develop, tell developing countries, you have to give up your own food security programs. You cannot procure food grains to maintain your own food stocks and feed your own population. You have to buy from the advanced countries. None of this uh, is explicable without an understanding of 
what we emphasize in the historical chapters in particular, that is the asymmetric nature of production capacities, which I do not think is there in any earlier book on colonialism and imperialism at all. I, will, I would like to come back to this point later on and perhaps give you also a quote from uh, Marx's Communist Manifesto to show how the knowledge about the tropics was so limited at that time. In fact, I think most academics in Northern universities still continue to be extremely ignorant about uh, the factual basis of colonialism and imperialism. They continue to be extremely ignorant about what really kept the international gold standard functioning. They continue not to realize that without the transfers of commodities which were not paid for from the tropical world, the international gold standard of the 19th century, which lasted till the Great Depression, itself could not have functioned at all. And that the current uh, international system of uh, global commodity supply chains is basically an imperialist system. So all this requires an understanding which is simply missing from all of the extant literature. So I'll give it back to Prabhat and please continue. Yeah, I mean, perhaps we could uh, also like um, go further into this topic in the sense of, um, I believe, I don't remember whether in a book or in an interview, uh, you tied this origins of mass poverty, especially in the global south, to this idea of the development of underdevelopment, which I think is a term by Andrew Frank. But uh, um, I think this is like still not, uh, I mean, it's poorly understood in the sense that uh, people still have this projection or this kind of like investment in development as some sort of like tide that raises our boat, all boats. Uh, and there is really no understanding of like this differential nature. Uh, of development that is completely predicated on underdevelopment. And also, uh, I mean, if you could unpack that, like this distinction between underdevelopment and undevelopment, as in, um, you know, the fact that obviously like the, the countries that are now considered developed countries, they were never or they never underwent the process of underdevelopment. Right. In fact, that is also true. Yeah, I mean, that's that's also true of Japan because the one country from Asia that became developed is the one country that was never colonized. It it had unequal relations and so on, but on the other hand, it got out of it reasonably early. So the point is that, you know, people, you're absolutely right. The distinction must be made between undevelopment and underdevelopment. The typical view, you look at any economics textbook and so on, the typical view is that, you know, more or less all countries were undeveloped, but then some countries invested more and, and, and so on, and that is why they had experienced high growth, and because of that they moved ahead, while others stayed behind. And from that the conclusion is sought to be drawn, that okay, now the way for the others to move forward is likewise to imitate exactly what the, what the original countries had done, raise your investment, etc., but on the other hand, that is not the case. In fact, what happens is that a very specific form of development is imposed upon those countries which were undeveloped. In other words, it's as if while some developed, others didn't just stay behind where they were, but they were actually given a parting kick 
by those who were developing. And uh, that, that was in terms of the whole structure of the economy. I mean, there are various ways. For instance, uh, a very important factor that time was what is called deindustrialization in in the literature, at least in India, which basically means that large numbers of handloom weavers, handicraft producers, etc., lost their occupation and were thrown into the reserve army of labor or became unemployed and they in turn had nowhere to go. So, so, so they crowded into agriculture. There was a lowering of the real wages. There was a rise in rents. There was a beginning of an impoverishment of the country and of the bulk of its people, uh, which really began with colonialism. And that process of impoverishment continues to this day in the sense that actually there is no doubt when you look at countries like India, they have had high rates of growth, but these high rates of growth has actually come to a very small number of people that that, that really, if you like, there has been the development of a bourgeoisie here and the development of an elite which is linked to the bourgeoisie. But if you look at the bulk of the working people by which I mean the workers, the peasants, the petty producers, the fishermen, the craftsmen, and so on. You actually find that during the neoliberal period, which means a re, which is a period of reassertion of capitalist hegemony over countries like India and others, uh, you actually find a worsening of absolute poverty. In other words, you know, a absolute poverty, not just inequality, but absolute poverty. No, I'd like to add a little bit to the discussion of uh, poverty. Uh, Prabhat has talked about deindustrialization, that is the dumping of manufacturers on the, for example, Asian market, first the Indian, later on the Chinese. And of course, I want to mention here <clears throat> that uh, most people do not un uh, know under what uh, real circumstances this took place, because the books which are written on industrialization by economic historians in the West actually give um, a wholly incorrect picture. Uh, they simply do not mention the fact, for example, that um, you look at a book like Dean and Cole, British Economic Growth, Trends and Structure. Uh, they simply uh, fail to mention that for 75 years, the British markets was protected by an outright ban on the import of Indian and Persian textiles, okay? A complete ban. Uh, they were not allowed to come in. Dean and Cole do not mention it. Uh, neither does Hobsbawm, nor does uh, David Lance in his book, The Unbound Prometheus. So I cannot emphasize enough the fact that the literature, literature by the economic historians, which is emanating from Northern universities, is incorrect. As, as to the correct statement of facts. And of course, this has to, uh, this is not uh, really uh, accidental. It has to do with an ideology of saying that there was a purely internal dynamic which operated in the case of British industrialization, purely internal dynamic in the case of German or French industrialization, a completely internal dynamic in the case of United States industrialization. In short, 
The industrialization of today's advanced countries is seen as proceeding completely independently of the underdevelopment of the uh, colonies of conquest. So one important part of our, uh, of our view, which I cannot uh, stress too much, because it is totally missing. Uh, not only is it missing, it is actively distorted by the literature which emerges from the Western countries, um, is that industrialization per se of the European countries and of the industrial north would have been impossible without the exploitation of today's global south. Because, uh, you know, the enormous amounts, um, enormous values of gold and foreign exchange that was earned by the producers who exported from India under the British or the Javanese uh, inhabitants of Java and the Netherlands, all this foreign exchange and gold was entirely appropriated by the industrializing power. And the distinction between India and Japan lies in this, that Japan escaped colonization, being colonized, partly because at the time when the colonial powers were making a thrust in the 1850s to colonize Japan, they almost colonized Japan, but then the Indian uh, Great Rebellion broke out in 1857, the British got busy with that, the uh, US war of independence, uh, uh, civil war broke out, US got busy with that, so Japan, escaped by a hair's breadth from being colonized. But the important reason that Japan could industrialize and be where it is today is that its export surplus earnings were its own to invest in its own country. Whereas the entire foreign exchange and gold earnings of the colonies of conquest were completely appropriated. And it was done by really defrauding the local producers. So this entire viewpoint, which simply talks about development and the contrast between undevelopment and underdevelopment, I think itself is basically extremely flawed because the understanding underlying it is, does not take into account this integral connection between industrialization of the global north and not only the deindustrialization of the global south, but the active retrogression that was imposed on their people. Because, you know, simple Keynesian macroeconomics teaches us that if you're collecting taxes from a, uh, from a country and you operate surplus budgets that you, you are spending only two thirds of those taxes or half those taxes in the normal manner, and one third to half of those taxes are simply being used for purchasing export goods, and the golden foreign exchange earnings from those exports are then not allowed, not a single penny or not a single, you know, franc uh, is allowed to accrue to the producers themselves, but it is entirely appropriated. Then this operation of surplus budgets will mean very likely that the Keynesian multiplier was operating in reverse. That is, it is actually a positive retrogression that was imposed on these countries. You know? And I cannot stress strongly enough that the existing literature is totally innocent of all. Not only is it innocent, it actively actually distorts the picture. And this was a case even in the case of Marx. In fact, if you read the Communist Manifesto, I'd like to uh, read out uh, uh, something that Marx and Engels wrote in extenuation. Uh, one has to remember 
that uh, Marx was only 30 years old and Engels was 28 to 29, perhaps. They were very young. Uh, they had just come to England as refugees from persecution. And um, when, when they wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848, this is the sentence. The cheap prices of commodities are the heavy artillery with which it, that is, his, they are talking about the bourgeoisie. They say the bourgeoisie, by the rapid improvement of all instruments of production, by the immensely facilitated means of communication, draws all, even the most barbarian nations, into civilization. Now, this was common parlance those days. Even Keynes, you know, a uh, hundred years later, uh, in economic consequences of the peace, uses this kind of offensive language that the European countries are civilized. Everybody else is, uh, consists of barbarians. Incidentally, the Chinese called the Europeans barbarians, and they considered themselves to be civilized. I think Marx and Engels could not have been unaware, even at their young age, of the ancient uh, history of Chinese civilization. So it was probably really peak, which actuated their use of this kind of language, you know, that the bourgeoisie draws even the most barbarian nations into civilization. The cheap prices of commodities are the heavy artillery with which it, that is the bourgeoisie, batters down all Chinese walls with which it forces the barbarians' intensely obstinate hatred of foreigners to capitulate. <laughs> so, you know, uh, they had to rely on whatever literature was available. And that literature was extremely racist, extremely homophobic, and it was totally ignorant of the long civilizations of these countries, of India and China. But more important than that, the economics is wrong. It was not the cheap prices of commodities at all with which Chinese walls were battered down. It was the actual use of gunships in the two opium wars because the Chinese had a demand for China, for the British had a demand and the Europeans had a very uh, large demand for Chinese commodities like porcelain, silk, and tea. On the other hand, the Chinese had no demand for European commodities or British commodities. As a result, there was a continuous trade deficit and there was a continuous outflow of silver to settle this trade deficit from Europe to China. And the reason that trade at gunpoint culminating in trade using the heavy artillery of, the, of naval power was used to force open the direct use of military and naval force to force the Chinese to trade was because the British wanted to dump opium on the Chinese as payment for their trade deficit. And of course, that opium they did not pay for because they controlled taxation revenues in India. They forced Indians to produce the opium under government monopoly. And then they actually paid those Indian producers out of their own taxes, out of the revenue. So they got the opium free and then they exchanged it for Chinese products, so they had no trade deficit anymore, and the outflow of silver to uh, ceased. Now, only 11 years later, when Marx is writing in the New York uh, Daily uh, Review, uh, New, uh, New York Daily Tribune, sorry, on the Second Opium War, he says exactly the opposite of what he said in the manifesto. He says that you know, the British manufacturers are concerned that the Chinese have no demand for cotton textiles from Britain. And they wish to open up the China, they wish to, uh, the Chinese had a higher demand, but as long as the opium trade continues, uh, they will not. 
he quotes some local authorities. But the manifesto's incorrect factual information has not been corrected in subsequent editions. Why not? Why is it the Marxists themselves do not say that this was factually incorrect? Why is it that other Marxists, like Eric Hobsbawm, give not a single reference to the protection of the British market? He's talking about the rise of cotton textiles in Britain. He says, whoever says industrial revolution says cotton. Why is it that he does not give a single reference to Friedrich Liszt, who talked about how the British market was uh, close to Indian textile exports, does not give a single reference to Marx, who later on talked about the discrimination against uh, textiles, Indian textiles. He does not give a single reference to Paul Baran. You know, uh, and he doesn't, who also discussed the textile uh, problem, and he does not give a single reference to Paul Mantu. So this is a very serious matter that even the most advanced thinkers of the most advanced philosophy in Western universities present a picture which is factually incorrect. And, uh, you know, I cannot stress this uh, enough because it is not only students in the advanced countries who read these books. It is also our students in the developing countries. It is part of their curricula. And it's high time that these factual inaccuracies as well as the, uh, you know, logically fallacious theories, such as Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage, which says that, uh, you know, trade according to comparative advantage is mutually beneficial. All these theories have to be critiqued. Uh, Ricardo's theory is the most absurd of theories because it had the assumption that all countries produce all goods, which is factually incorrect. In fact, you could not even define cost of production. Uh, coffee, I think uh, European populations when they wake up in the morning or North American populations can't do without their cup of tea or coffee, right? What is the cost of production of coffee in Austria or Germany or in mainland USA or in Britain? It does not exist. You cannot even define absolute cost, leave alone relative cost. And yet this fallacious theory is in every textbook to this day, 200 years after Ricardo wrote, and it is being used to tell developing countries, open up your agriculture to free trade. Because Ricardo has said that you will benefit. Ricardo's comparative cost theory tells us that specialization according to comparative advantage will benefit you to the tune of billions of dollars. So this kind of childish nonsense is being fed to our students you know, daily. And this is something that we have to look at and not only keep the discussion at such a rarefied level that actually the undergraduate student may not even be able to understand it. We need a thoroughgoing critique. And I'm sure when I was reading the write-up you sent where you, uh, it was very good, uh, you mentioned Hegel, Kant, and so on. I'm pretty sure that uh, people, philosophers in Europe like Hegel had not the slightest idea of the reality of Asian civilizations. They had not the slightest conception of how these societies actually functioned. As indeed, James Mill did not. But did not, that did not prevent them from actually being highly opinionated for having very firmly held views on how these societies function. So this, the level of ignorance that still remains is just utterly phenomenal. Okay? Okay, I'm handing it over again to Prabhat. I, no, I, 
I would like to ask if we could tie this to this, uh, you know, like broader question of the structuring force of race in geopolitics, because of course, like there is this, um, especially at times of like, uh, you know, Kenyans, Kenyans in, so, sorry, Keynesian, I, I always mispronounce, uh, interventions in the economy. You always have this alignment between the white working class and capital, and this alignment is always uh, is always to the detriment of the class you call the price takers in the global south. And and I would like to um, a little bit zoom into this question because I mean I'm sure you're aware that now, especially during the COVID the COVID crisis. There was again a resurgence uh, of this idea of like Kenyans in economics, and uh, you know, like the left in Europe is very much uh, lionizing this. And I think there's a total um, blind spot when it comes. Or let me rephrase: I think that one needs to thematize the question that uh, when it comes to the colonial uh, um, divide. There is no left and right in Europe, right? There is like a structural imperialistic dimension. Uh, and regardless of whose parties are in power and regardless of what type of economic policies these parties will put forth, uh, this imperialist uh, dimension endures and that it wouldn't be able to endure without, uh, you know, like being buttressed by all of this, uh, you know, like also enduring prejudices about, you know, like because it's always narrated in terms of like some sort of like um, cultural inadequacy. Uh, or, you know, like uh, cultural deficit, deficit uh, that prevents this uh, Global South countries from developing. And and it's interesting also, like, how this narratives keeps, you know, like, of course, like, th they always boomerang back and forth, but now they are, again, like, spiraling back, you know, from the periphery to the center, because you could also see how during the Greek debt crisis, uh, you know, like the same type uh, of prejudice was uh, mobilized. Uh, you know, like sorry, like I, I don't, I don't want to go on. I just want. To... Well, you know, okay. Before we proceed further, I just like to add something to what we discussed earlier. You see, this idea of the drain of getting commodities free from the colonies of conquest actually is something that figures very prominently in Marx very late in his life. In fact, two years before his death, he wrote a letter to Nikolayon Danielson, who was the Russian Narodnik economist, in which he refers to the amount that the British take from India without any quid pro quo is equal to the income of 60 million indian workers so so he 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 i think he came to realize it much later obviously his views are changing he is reading more and more so he came to realize the significance of this entire phenomenon much later in life but of course then he didn't survive much beyond that in order to i think in about 18 months he he died uh, to develop all this now coming to the point that you are raising i would of course you know i mean there there is a kind of hegemony of bourgeois thinking which affects not just the colonies but also the metropolitan working class you know i mean obviously uh, the whole idea i mean if it is the case as also saying that you know even Marxist historians, even Marxist economists and so on, are not able to break the shackles of this hegemony. You can imagine how strong it is and how strong it has been as far as the working class is concerned. 
I would not fault the working class for wanting a larger employment. It is very good. This is very important. It's part of the struggle of the workers because capitalism uh, is a system that pushes them into uh, huge unemployment and so on. So I, 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 I would actually demand that, that there should be metropolitan capitalism providing full employment. But the counterpart of that full employment is that all the materials required for it, namely raw materials, foodstuffs, coffee, tea, and you know, etc. All these commodities which are obtained are commodities which have to be grown to a significantly larger extent in, in, in the South. In other words, not by depressing the living standards and the absorption by the Southern population of these commodities, but actually by enlarging the production of these commodities in the South, which requires, of course, <clears throat> that there has to be uh, what what I would call a land augmentation. In fact, we mentioned this in the book. Land, in other words, the land area is more or less used up. But what you have to do is to raise yields. And raising yields is something that requires a number of measures, you know, irrigation, it requires better seeds, etc. All these are ways in which the land productivity has to be raised in the south but 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 what the north always tries to do or you know the 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 industrial the the bourgeois, northern bourgeoisie tries to do is not through an expansion of land productivity but through a depression of the local absorption of what is produced. I mean, in other words, if you and and because of that, you actually have this growing poverty that we were talking about. That actually there's a growth in poverty because the northern demand for goods from the temporary from, from the tropical and subtropical regions is met by depressing local absorption rather than by increasing production. But but the fact that this way uh you know commodities are obtained from, from the South is something which is not necessarily understood uh, even by the working class, let alone, of course, I mean, if, if even the professors and economists and historians don't really see the, the, the reality, then, of course, you can imagine how ignorant the trade union movement would be of, of this. That I, I would agree with you. Could we just uh, add another point? Um the political hegemony of uh, neoliberal ideology, see, I would again say springs from a certain degree of uh, uh, lack of understanding on the part of the left as well. That uh, neoliberal globalization, you see, there's a very ambiguous uh, attitude that the northern left has had to globalization. Um, they do not seem to understand that uh, uh, globalization led by finance is very different from any kind of globalization which is people-led. So they think of globalization as a good thing. And uh, this is expressed in the recent development of terms like nationalism being used as dirty words. You know, I don't know. So uh, that affects us profoundly because we are proud of our uh, national heritage. We are proud of our anti-colonial struggle. So if you start... Uh, designating nationalism as a bad thing. Uh, this is a purely, I think, European phenomenon, and it, I don't agree with it at all. 
because it probably has roots in the um, disgust with uh, the fact that the Nazis called themselves national socialists. I don't know where the roots come from. But everybody on the left now, you know, uh, thinks of nationalism as being a dirty word. And they talk about populism as being a dirty word as well. Both of them are totally non-analytical categories of analysis, and they miss the point completely. The point is that uh, this uh, finance capital is what has undertaken globalization over the last 30 years, and it has affected adversely both the working class in the global north, and it has been a disaster for working people, that is workers and the peasants, and the peasantry far outnumber workers in the global south. In the global north, the failure of the left to understand the nature of um, uh, finance-led globalization, the fact that it has been really bad, the fact that uh, the austerity programs it has imposed on countries like Greece and so on has uh, resulted in increased poverty even in a European country, um, is even more serious when it comes to the impact of finance-led globalization in countries like ours. Because there are two pillars to this. You know, when a country, Asian country or an African country uh, comes under the sway of this kind of globalization, where the internal policy measures are overnight changed, as in India they were in 1991, from the Nehruvian policies of expansionary fiscal policies of supporting petty production, small producers like peasants and artisans, and of cordoning off the economy to a certain extent from the destabilizing effects of the global market, when this set of policies is overnight transformed into free trade and into fiscal compression, then the impact on our population has been completely disastrous. First of all, the agricultural population has been exposed after four or five decades to global price volatility. You know, global prices of commodities go up and down. They're very volatile. And our peasantry had not been, had been protected from this for 40 years, from independence right up to the end of the 1980s. They simply had no experience of it. And suddenly you open up. Under the pressure of the international monetary um, uh, institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, and later on the WTO, as well as individual governments which pressurize developing country governments to open up their trade, to reduce their trade barriers. So we have seen, because our peasants have been exposed to this kind of crashing, sudden rise and sudden fall in prices, since 1997 there has been 350,000 farmers committing suicide, owing to debt. It has been the most, uh, you know, economically produced genocide, I would say. It, genocide through economic means. So you no longer have the crude methods of the earlier colonial era, where people went out and massacred others you know, in, in, the, uh, in the global south. Of course, those methods are now gone. They may be still there in remote parts of the world. But the economic methods, which lead to uh, literally hundreds of thousands of uh, people to a position where they have to take their own lives. I would call genocide by economic means. And, uh, you know, the people who are responsible for this have to be brought to account. And similarly, the rise of fascist movements in the global north that we have seen in recent years is a result of this, this, uh, this failure 
of the people of the movements on the left to understand the danger of finance-led globalization, of their withdrawing from the protection of their own working class. So it is not surprising. It is more or less a recreation of the scenario you had in 1920s Germany. You know, I attended a conference in Berlin uh, in uh, 2005, in which people were uh, very important people from international institutions were present. They were all talking about food security, and they were all telling the developing countries, uh, agriculture ministers, open up, because Ricardo has shown that free trade will give you benefits. So when I gave a completely diametrically opposite presentation, and I said that opening up to free trade combined with uh, fiscal contraction, which means the government is no longer investing, it is no longer able to raise productivity in agriculture, is leading to this kind of a situation of tremendous impoverishment plus farmer suicides. Then during the tea break, the agriculture minister from uh, Luxembourg uh, asked, told me, but you know, your prime minister Manmohan Singh is not Hitler. Because 2005, uh, you know, it was not uh, the present government uh, which was there at that time. I said, no, he's not Hitler, but he's Bruning. Bruning was the, you know, the hung was nicknamed the Hunger Chancellor in Germany, in uh, the Weimar in the Weimar Republic, and he was the Chancellor in Germany who had followed policies of fiscal contraction. Because Germany's international creditors wanted those policies followed. They wanted austerity to be imposed on Germany so that Germany did not default on the loans that it owed. And the loans it owed was largely because of reparations uh, after the defeat uh, in the war. So, uh, you know, Bruning followed these uh, policies of uh, extreme fiscal contraction, uh, which raised unemployment in Germany to enormous heights. And this gave scope for both the development of the left and the right. But the left parties, as you know, did not come together. The Social Democrats and the Communists did not come together at that point of time. They had sectarian differences, and it permitted the rise of fascism in Germany, the rise of Hitler, through, who could mobilize the discontent of the workers. You see exactly the same phenomenon taking place now. You know, After all, what was Trump? And how could he rise to power? In, uh, in the United States? What about the extreme right-wing neo-fascist and fascist movements in European countries? What about the fact that in uh, my own country, India, you had an overwhelming majority uh, of votes, well, overwhelming majority of seats, not necessarily votes, going to um, a party which explicitly admired the writings of Mussolini or even Hitler? So the, you know, this whole question of neoliberal globalization has to be, I think, critiqued at a very fundamental and strong level than it has been uh, done so far, and particularly by the left. Yes, I mean, could you, uh, because I think this is really poorly understood, the conflation between neo-fascism and neoliberalism. And people still have, or still, still cling to this view that, you know, like, uh, Fascist movements, like you know, like uh, historical fascist movements back from the 20s and 30s, would be nationalistic in the sense of protectionist. Um, and yeah, like if you if you could like um, um, zoom into that, I think that would be very useful. You know, basically there is a difference between 
nationalism as it developed in Europe and nationalism of an anti-colonial kind as it developed in the third world countries, countries like India and so on. To think of both these nationalisms as being identical is in fact a mistake. In our country, for instance, in India, the neo-fascists, the, the Hindu right, which is currently ruling the country, which is really neo-fascist, never participated in the anti-colonial struggle. It never participated in anti-colonial. Gandhi was the chap who was the leader of the anti-colonial struggle. And in fact, one of the followers of the Hindu right assassinated him. To this day, they in fact celebrate him. Uh, so the point is that 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 the anti-colonial nationalism in India was really a sui generis phenomenon. And to and it becomes very important for that kind of nationalism to be revived today because that is the nationalism that actually brought the country together. I would say there were three basic differences between European and the anti-colonial nationalism. One is that in Europe, they, that nationalism, which began after the Treaty of Westphalia, uh, had always an internal enemy. You know, the 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 Jews, for instance, or or the or the or the Catholics in Northern Europe, or the Protestants in Southern Europe, and so on. While in India, the whole idea of anti-colonial struggle and the nationalism that developed around it was inclusive. It did not have an internal enemy, unlike what now the Hindu right is trying to do. The Muslims are an internal enemy. So, in a sense, they are actually following 17th century European nationalism as opposed to the traditions of the anti-colonial nationalism. Then you have, from the, from the very beginning, you actually had in 17th century Europe, uh, the nationalism that, that, that emerged is one which was actually imperialist. In fact, you know, I mean, within within months of the Westphalian Treaty, Oliver Cromwell had invaded Ireland, which was the very first colony that actually a European power had. So, uh, while here, the whole idea was to build bridges with neighboring countries because they were all fighting uh, colonialism. Uh, and, 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 and the idea also was that, you know, I mean, the 17th century European nationalism thought in terms of the nation serving the people while, while you know, uh, so sorry, the, the other way around, anti-colonial nationalism saw the nation as serving the people uh, while, you know, the 17th century European nationalism, which continued that entire tradition, uh, was that the nation stands above the people, people make sacrifices for the nation. Eric Maria remarks, all quiet in the Western Front. You know, so, so, so they are very different kinds of things. We use the same term nationalism is really misleading in that context. And I would say that in countries like ours, because the anti-colonial nationalism was uh, 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 an inclusive nationalism, it constitutes the foundation of our nationhood. It constitutes the foundation, for instance, in a country which had millennia of caste inequality. 
of defy of having a constitution that actually provides equal rights to all citizens there's a fundamental difference from our own past so there is a need to carry forward sustain and revive the anti colonial nationalism but when when this happens many who do not draw this distinction between the two kinds of nationalism they say no no it's horrible you 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 cannot do that you know but but that is something which is in in my view incorrect there would be something else that i would like to ask um which is also like one of these discussions that i feel um is completely trapped in this divide which is like uh the discussion around the digital turn and digital economy and platform economy and um so like here in europe you have recently like a flurry of interest or you know like there's this um uh moniker called techno feudalism that has been put forth to describe this post capitalist moment or the idea that we already left capitalism behind and uh the argument is that uh digital platforms like amazon facebook etc are not markets or are no longer or could no longer be considered markets so in that sense uh we enter the new era and uh in in the, in which this uh, mode of production can no longer be called capitalist uh you know it can be nonetheless exploitative and uh, you know like um, oppressive all those things but is no longer or could no longer be called capitalist so i mean my question would be do you see these terms as something worth engaging with or would you see them as you know another one of those typical distortions of the global north i mean i'm thinking for instance of like this discussions around the material labor and the attention economy you know like that in the end only provide a very partial understanding uh of what is happening in terms of geopolitics and you know like as you said before they can actually trap people in this kind of like uh completely distorted and then also like very um yeah like uh um what would be the word uh <laughs> detrimental views in the sense that uh they they actually hinder any you know like uh way forward i would not i'm sure she can add to this i would not describe this as as going beyond capitalism in any sense on the contrary this is actually capitalism and and what is more a lot of this digitization really is capitalism in its to my mind in its terminal phase because of the fact that the amount of unemployment that exists at this moment is something which is likely to be further compounded further accentuated by all this digitization that is taking place for instance in india there is now talk of uh, digital agriculture now in a situation where you have uh, millions of people who have been deprived of employment opportunities you actually utsa said about you know the, the peasant suicides the acute distress of laborers and so 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 i would say that it is actually capitalism in its decline in which the idea is to uh, you know i mean survival at a political level by recourse to neo fascism and of course an attempt to increase their profits shore up their profits through digitization if possible uh but the point is that you know that 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 whether it is 
digitized capitalism or pre-digitized capitalism it is something which is to my mind it has lost its 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 capacity to generate jobs its capacity to uh, uh, retain its hegemony in, in in terms of getting support and so on i know that for instance biden is trying to have a revival of new deal uh, there is an effort to 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 revive the welfare state and so on. on the other hand that's meeting very substantial resistance from financial interests i mean in the us for instance very substantial resistance when 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 biden suggested an international cor- uh, corporate income taxation finally he had to compromise on 15% which is really extremely low so so is you know a revival in the declining stages of capitalism uh, in 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 this terminal stage of capitalism of welfare capitalism like like for instance in the post second world war period seems out to me and in countries like ours is absolutely clear because you know there is acute suffering at this moment because of the fact that that pandemic and even before the pandemic there was a lot of unemployment and so on but on the other hand a budget was presented about a week ago which gives no uh, alloc- no increased allocation for let's say health or in real terms for education and so on so so obviously i think we we capitalism the way i see it has reached the end of its tether it has reached its 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 limits and it of course i'm not saying it's going to collapse but how it manages to carry on is something that remains to be seen but i don't see any of the ways in which it is trying to sustain itself with new fascism digitization or even welfare capitalism none of it i see as being of much help as far as the people are concerned from whom after all it has to derive some sort of legitimacy can i just add a ah, word <clears throat> yeah so there's nothing uh, i agree with whatever prabhat said of course but i would also like to add that a moribund imperialism a moribund capitalism is characterized by greater and greater recourse to intellectual dishonesty in its conceptualization of problems and uh, that is something we find very clearly on uh, all this poverty debates because we see that uh, uh, the world bank gives you uh, poverty figures uh, and tells you that poverty has declined in developing countries and there's that there's been a huge decline in asia and everybody believes that and they simply do not look at how these poverty figures have been arrived at how uh, this conclusion has been arrived at if you look carefully at that and i've been doing so for the last 15 years in publishing critiques you find that just like ricardo's theory absurd theory of mutual benefit from comparative advantage by assuming uh, something which is materially not true that every country can produce every good similarly in the case of the world bank's estimates of poverty they are following a method in which the standard against which poverty is measured is itself being lowered over time you see the standard is a minimum nutrition norm minimum nutrition norm in terms of kilocalories per day so that standard itself is lowered over time and then you say that poverty has gone down no poverty has not gone down on the contrary if you maintain the same standard as all these 
it's not just the World Bank, it's every uh, country in the world. Every government in the world is following this fallacious, logically incorrect method, which is absurd. And the poverty line that they give you, against which poverty is being measured now, whether you talk about India or China or Tanzania, doesn't matter. They all work out to about the same level that the poverty level expenditure will allow you to buy two one liter bottles of water. That's all, you know, that is all. And um, uh, it amounts to, that. that is daily, you know. It amounts in uh, terms of uh, US dollars, um, the local poverty line uh, works out to something now like 30 cents a day. And that is the amount of money on which a person is supposed to meet every cost, not only food, but requirement of manufacturing good, of payment of rent, utilities, transport costs, medical costs, everything. You cannot imagine a more absurd intellectual level to which the international institutions have sunk and every government has sunk when they give you uh, this in a serious manner and tell you that poverty has gone down. So, you know, this is, this is just one index of the complete intellectual collapse of any kind of honest theory. There is no honesty at all left. You know, there is not, no honest appraisal. There, there is just sloganeering and there is building up of a myth that poverty has declined because they want to say that our policies of neoliberal globalization etc. has resulted in decline in poverty when precisely the opposite is in reality the case. And digitization again is again a very favorite slogan of the neo-fascists, including in our country. And what does digitization mean? Just because there are some people who have got jobs by digitally connecting with advanced economies does not mean that the mass of the population has got employment or subsistence. No, this is a tiny minority which has benefited. And the vast majority, like 80% of our population, has gone down in terms of its standard of living. So I would say that the total collapse of any kind of honest intellectual discourse is one symptom of this degenerate phase of capitalism and imperialism. It is not going beyond capitalism at all. It is a situation where it is in a more sorry state than it has ever been before, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I, I would also be interested in this question of abstraction, you know, like how, how language is used, because, um, uh, you know, it's, it's part of this rhetorical repertoire that is basically used to shore up all of this dishonesty or mendacity that you just described. And, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, I follow uh, neo-fascist parties in Europe, and I think that um, part of their appeal has to do with, you know, like what people call populism, which, as you just said, is a category that does not have any kind of like analytical portraits. Uh, and, you know, it's used indiscriminately to talk, you know, Corbyn is a populist and Putin is a populist and everybody's a populist. But I think part of their appeal is precisely the fact that they talk about concrete matters and people feel that they can participate, you know, like f people feel that they have access. And, you know, like, of course, like, I don't intend to say this as like any kind of apology for neo-fascist parties, but, you know, like just to mean that, uh, you know, like the usage of language, I think it's very important in the way um, how you create opacity. You see, for instance, any 
political party or any government which actually wants to make some transfers to the poor or have some kind of programs, welfare programs on health, education and so on, is immediately branded populist. And then a distinction is drawn between left populism and right populism. So that, you know, I think basically the term populism itself is highly misleading and, and, and should just not be used. Depoliticizing, you can say. Depoliticizing. Uh, because it conflates the left and the right yeah, together. Exactly. You know. Yes. No, absolutely. Uh, one other question I would be curious in hearing your thoughts on would be, uh, so basically there's this belief that, um, you know, like uh, international finance leads to a muting of uh, aggression, especially, you know, like this aggression, um, inter-imperial aggression. And uh, um, this, you know, like has been true to a certain extent, you know, like in the post-war era. But uh, I would like to hear your thoughts about this kind of like rising tensions, especially, uh, you know, like uh, Biden's foreign policy and, um, you know, how uh, this, chi- you know, like this rising U.S. Chi- challenges to Chinese hegemony, uh, you know, can kind of like lead to a break with this kind of like, uh, let's say, post-war semi-harmony. You see, in the post-war period, uh Obviously, for some time, inter-imperialist rivalries were muted because of the fact that you had, uh, you know, I mean, unquestioned U.S. hegemony. Even after you have the emergence of globalized finance capital, it is the hegemony of globalized finance capital as opposed to U.S. hegemony, which actually prevents uh, inter-imperialist rivalries becoming very serious because finance wants to move around all over the world. And that being the case, any breaking up of the world into mutually antagonistic uh, blocks is something that prevents the overall flow of finance. Many people think of it as a Kautsky's victory in the Kautsky-Lenin difference that Lenin had talked about. But I don't think, I mean, I think the entire scene has gone beyond Kautsky-Lenin debate. In other words, it, it is the emergence of uh, international finance capital, globalized finance capital. Earlier you had, let's say, German finance capital or British finance capital and so on. Now you really have globalized finance capital. And I, you see, I, I do not see this breaking down immediately. In, in other words, it's true that, I mean, many people argue, for instance, that look, the emergence of China or the emergence of Russia, uh, well, not emergence, but continuation of, of, of antagonism vis-a-vis Russia is something which is going to result in a kind of loss of this 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 kind of, you know, entente, if you like, or or whatever you wish to call it, you know, this kind of an understanding. But I don't see that happening immediately. I mean, I think, you know, a substantial number of Russian rich would be interested, they would like to park their wealth, for instance, in the West. And and I don't think that situation is they do exactly. Now, if they park their wealth in the West, they're not going to promote a war with the, with the West. Likewise, it used to be said, I don't know how true it is, with Xi Jinping coming and cracking down and so on, but, but the fact is that 
that until very recently, substantial number of Chinese rich also parked their wealth in the West. In fact, there was an interesting article in New York Times some, some time ago, which said that first they send their um, children to the, uh, to, to the West, then they send their wealth to the West, and then finally they, they, they at least send their families to the West. How true it is now, I don't know. But the fact remains that I think there is too much of, of this kind of relationship for there to be a plausible view of, of, of there being actually antagonism so serious that might lead to war and so on. There is also the question of the uh, uh, financial, as it were, uh, relationships between countries. So however um, acrimonious, for example, the, um, it might get uh, between the United States and China, you have to bear in mind that a very large part of China's foreign assets are parked uh, in the U.S., you know, are, are held as U.S. government securities. So the moment China abandoned in the late 1980s, it abandoned the earlier Maoist policies of delinking from the capitalist world. And there was a complete policy shift towards uh, relinking with the capitalist world. It also underwent very important internal changes because the commune system in agriculture was broken down because the new leadership at that time wanted uh, mobile labor force, you know. So it deliberately undertook some institutional changes of a very serious nature in order to ensure that the labor force would be mobile, would move from the countries to the cities, and particularly to the special economic zones where foreign enterprises were invited to set up their uh, you know, uh, industries. And the whole so-called miracle of China that the uh, northern economists hail and contrast usually unfavorably with that of India is owing to this integration that the Chinese government undertook with the capitalist system compared to the earlier delinking that had been practiced under Maoist policies. And with this kind of interlinking between governments, you know, you could have uh, the spat, temporary spats, um, because as in the past, the Chinese don't really need very much from the West. They're a very ancient civilization, very rich, very highly biodiverse, just as in India. They produce everything they need themselves. So why should they not run trade surpluses? It is not their fault that the industrial nations uh, have so little primary products or uh, affordable industrial manufactured goods that their populations want China to import Chinese goods. So instead of cutting down on their own population's imports, what is the point and what is the logic of blaming China and saying that, you know, you have to revalue your currency and so on? This is an absurd position for the U.S. administration to have been taken under Trump and to have imposed sanctions on China and so on. But that is all part of the stupidity of the leaders who lead the most advanced capitalist countries today. How would you see something that, for instance, Yanis Varoufakis was the former Greek finance minister thematizing now, which is like the introduction of the digital yuan and the way, you know, like this creation of like uh, digital wallets would basically pose a challenge to commercial banking. And um, in that sense, the link, you know, the Chinese economy from global finance. 
and you know in you know like as a result uh, or could as a result lead uh, to uh you know, like increased aggression from the West in the sense that, of course, like Wall Street would be like extremely invested in preventing this from happening. Also, because, of course, like the moment this happened, then literally everyone in the world could start to use these digital wallets created by the, dig- you know, like linked to the digital yuan and and therefore, uh, you know, like basically de-intermediate all financial transactions. So, I mean, that would be last question, I promise I don't see that happening in the foreseeable future. Let me be quite frank. You know, I do not even see the digital currencies gaining much ground in the foreseeable future. I I know one can quote uh, various figures about the rates of growth, etc. But I do not see, for instance, cryptocurrency or digital currencies gaining much ground in the... Sorry to interrupt. This is not a cryptocurrency. This would be like a state, uh, you know, basically just uh, electronic currency. Well, you know, I mean... (laughs) The point is that, okay, cryptocurrency is not backed by any state, okay? Uh, and that being the case, I, I, I do not see uh, that cryptocurrency is going to grow very rapidly, even though people give all kinds of figures and so on. So I, I, I don't see that happening. Uh, as far as digital currency backed by a particular state is concerned, all right. You know, that obviously, because of the state backing, can be an alternative uh, but on the other hand, I, I do not also see, you know, let's take a very simple case. I mean, you know, China holds enormous amounts of U.S. dollars. OK, now what happens to those dollar holdings? I mean, you know, what is going to be the exchange rate between the digital yuan and the dollar holding that China has? As Utsa said, you know, the, the interpenetration now is so great that to visualize that all that is going to break because of uh, the fact that, you know, uh, China is, 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 is going to promote um, digitized currency and so on is, is, I think, premature. Put it this way. I would just say it's premature. I, I would not see this happening in the near future.